welcome to the latest episode of our Political Capital podcast featuring both Lanson's political consultants and opinions polling experts. Lanson's, as you may know, is an award-winning strategic reputation management consultancy which blends expertise across consumer, financial, policy, employee and media engagement to help build and protect reputations. And Opinium is an award-winning strategic insight agency, and we were the most accurate polling agency in uh, both the 2019 general election and the 2016 EU referendum, as well as the last two London mayoral elections. In this running series, we're exploring the undercurrents in British politics, looking not only at the headline-grabbing stories of the past fortnight, but also the pressures and realities which drive our decision-makers to act as they do. I'm James Dowling. I'm a former Conservative Special Advisor, a former Treasury official, and I'm also Lanson's lead political consultant. And I'm Adam Drummond, I'm an Associate Director and the Head of Political Polling at Opinion. So Adam, we of course now know that uh, Joe Biden uh, is, well he's been declared at least the uh, President-elect, a uh, lot of discussion about how how official that, that status is, but nevertheless uh, that is currently where we are. Um, a lot of discussion along those lines about how inaccurate the result was versus versus what the pollsters had had been saying we might we might see, uh, and indeed, kind of tw- Trump has been the most enthusiastic kind of uh, proponent of this position. I mean, yesterday tweeting that the polling of his position was quote so inaccurate that it really is tampering with an election, and then kind of t- talking about Iowa, which I which I think was the only state that he won uh, contrary to expectation. Florida, I suppose, as well, but that was much more marginal. Um, uh, he said the polls had us down, four, had us four points down, and I won by eight point two percent. Were the polls really as wrong as they were last time? So, just to nitpick on the Iowa point, um, the most uh, one of the most respected um, pollsters in the US is Ann Seltzer, who um, works in Iowa and does almost exclusively polling of Iowa for things like the Iowa caucus. Um, and she came out with um, what was seen as a bit of an outlier just before the election, showing Trump, yeah, about eight points ahead and the Republican Senate candidate there ahead as well. So she actually ended up being almost perfectly accurate, which um, yeah, shows that her reputation is really well earned and you should never doubt what she comes out with. Um, but I do think it's fascinating, this position that, um, okay, the, the, the polling didn't reflect um, the actual result and therefore the polling is is somehow sort of more accurate than the actual result because of some of the ways that that uh, Trump keeps talking about um, some other polling agencies which had him ahead and, and doing much better in some of the other states. Um, overall, though, it seems to be a bit of a case of sort of 2016 um, all over again, except that in 2016, Hillary Clinton wasn't far enough ahead that a normal-sized polling error um, uh, that, that she'd be able to withstand a normal-sized polling error, whereas Joe Biden was far enough ahead that the same sort of level of error could happen, but he would still win. Some of the results are still coming in. I mean, certainly, I think they're still counting Alaska. There may be there there are, there are probably a few others as well. I mean, most 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 are finished, but we haven't got the official numbers, and we won't till I think early December. Early December is when they need to be certified. So, I mean, we're not for a while going to going to know what the final vote tallies are. Uh, so, I mean, is it well? Two points, I suppose, come out of that. Is it too early to say that the polls are actually really far out? And on the basis of what you're seeing so far, you know, how how accurate? I mean, are, is this margin of error stuff, or is it bigger? Or you know, bearing in mind that a, that, that a lot of the polls, the central number was around seven or uh, projected around a seven or eight percent lead for Biden. You know, how how far out are we ending up? Are, are, are we? Is it looking like you might end up? So it's as as you know, 
regular listeners or, or people who, who read into this will know that the issue with the US is always the, the gap between the national share of the vote and the national level results and each individual state. Um, so, um, as and again, just to sort of beat a dead horse, what, what was the case in 2016 was that the national level polling was about accurate. Hillary Clinton was ahead by about three points and she won by about two or three points. Um, but she was behind... She did worse than her polling said she would in all of the key states, which allowed Trump to just squeak over the line. So she fell down in the college. Exactly. So what looks like it, what looked like has happened this year is that the the national polling. So Joe, Joe Biden obviously was never in danger of losing the popular vote, and he is going to win that again quite substantially. Um, he's going to win it by more than um, Hillary Clinton won it by, but less than the average of um, the national level polling suggested. So his his final popular vote margin is somewhere between three and eight percent. So split split the difference. Yeah. So so his final his final like national level popular vote share is probably going to be within margin of error of the average of national level polls. Um, but he he did worse than um, the state level polls suggested he would. Um, but that that effect wasn't uniform in the way that it was in 2016. So in some states, for example, Georgia looks like it's actually going to be pretty close to what polls are suggesting. And polls said it was really a toss up, and it's come down to about 10,000 votes. And I believe they're having a recount. So there was sort of accurate. In Florida, polls suggested that um, Biden was slightly ahead, and he's uh, and he wasn't, you know it wasn't that close, like Trump won it quite comfortably. Um, and then in other states, such as Wisconsin, which um, Biden won by a squeaker, by less than 1%, uh, polling beforehand suggested he was up by sort of, you know, seven or even 10 points. So it looks like he, he underperformed his polls, but he was far enough ahead in the polls that he still won anyway. I mean, ultimately, I so I want to talk about what's going on here, uh, although it's clear that what's going on here isn't what's going on every, isn't going on everywhere. It's going on in certain states. And then it would be useful to, uh, I think, kind of bearing in mind that I introduced this thing that we were talking about British politics, talk about whether there are lessons for the way one thinks about the polls in the UK. But uh, I just want to kind of throw one thing at you before we do that. Trump yesterday, I think, tweeted, and I'm not going to do the accent, we believe these people are thieves. The big city machines are corrupt. This was a stolen election. Best pollster in Britain wrote this morning this clearly was a stolen election that it's impossible to imagine that Biden outran Obama in some of these states. You're the best pollster in Britain, surely. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to sort of politely decline that. Um, so <laughs> the person he's referring to is uh, someone called, I'm going to get this right, Patrick Basham, um, who is an American-based um, uh, think tank head um, who did some polls for the Daily Express, um, which showed, uh, which which basically predicted Trump was going to win in a landslide, and so he wrote something for Daily Express, and it got mentioned by Newt Gingrich on Fox News, and because most of Trump's presidency has been spent watching and live tweeting Fox News, it then made its way into the presidential Twitter feed. Um, so there's a couple of interesting things about that. One is that. I mean, it's, it, I, I think it's a fascinating position to to say that, okay, this poll predicting Trump was going to win doesn't match the election results, therefore the election results are wrong. And it's it's a, yeah, it's, it's an interesting position to take, um, and it's certainly a sort of straw he's trying to grasp. And um, Patrick Basham has um, basically sort of joined the, the sort of conspiracy theory cranks um, uh, sort of field. Um, in in trying to come up with any kind of sort of statistical evidence that shows that it's statistically impossible for um, for Joe Biden to have won, when in actually in actual fact, you know, turnout rose among Republicans and turnout rose even more among Democrats, and that's ultimately why Biden won. 
Yeah. And I suppose I suppose if you're thinking about lessons to general lessons to learn when you're thinking about polling here, surely one of the I mean setting aside the, the peculiarities of the US system for a moment, surely one point is that actually looking at an individual poll doesn't tell you very much and you're quite you know, there's quite a lot of risk hanging all your hopes on an individual poll. You need to look at the aggregate you need to look at trend over time and ideally where the polls are clustering. And and the the difficulty here, though, as as with the last couple of elections we've had, where the result has been a surprise, is that people largely did look at the aggregate, and and did look at the average, and the result was different to that. And so so there is you know there is definitely sort of cause for concern, especially as one of the big takeaways that was identified after twenty sixteen was that um, polls, especially in in the key states, weren't getting enough um, white working class non college educated voters. Um, in their samples, they, their their samples assumed a far bigger proportion of people had a college degree than is actually the case, and that wasn't really thought to matter that much in 2016. And then afterwards, obviously, it was then seized upon as the actual cause of the error. So everybody corrected for that, ourselves included, um, and that it was thought that okay, we've solved the issue that happened in 2016. And but evidently, as we've seen, that obviously wasn't the silver bullet. So there were there were various sort of competing theories as to you know why. Um, that why the, the numbers um, underestimated Trump in the way that they did. Um, I haven't really heard that many that are convincing apart from one, which is that there, there is evidently there's possibly sort of a slice of the American population um, where um, who are very sort of um, sort of anti-system and who view taking part in any sort of survey research um, as being sort of, you know, part of the corrupt elite or something like that. And so um, I don't think it's an issue with people lying or, you know, people giving false information to um, partner companies because that's really only happened once um, or only been uh, seen. It's only thought to have happened once back in sort of 1992. I think it's, as with the polling errors that we had in the UK, I think it's down to getting the right people to take part in the first place. I mean, this is the point that Frank Luntz made on Newsnight, uh, I think it was last, at the end of last week. That, uh, but, I mean, the, the point he was making, if I, if I remember correctly, is that, you know, this is a group of people. Uh, and there's a question about how, how much you can kind of assume, you can kind of draw lessons from the US to the UK. But this is a group of people who, for whatever reason, are being syst- systematically overlooked. Uh, because for whatever reason, the kind of the way the polling industry does their business is not working, it's not capturing them. Um, and is that, I mean, from your point of view, I mean, does that resonate then? And uh, is there something, given there is a particular nature about some of these people, and they clearly they are largely Trump supporters, how do you, how do you poll them? I mean, how do you get at them? I think, and, and you're, you're right to say that there's, there's a limit to the degree to which we should sort of draw parallels between the UK and the US because, you know, same language but very different politics. Um, but I think, yeah, you're right, there is, there is some kind of commonality there in that the issue after, so, you know, the, the great polling miss in 2015, which was the first election I worked on, so that's kind of seared into my brain, um, the issue with that was that... Um, the people who were taking part in polls, whether that was online or whether it was people answering the phone, the people who were taking part were too into politics. They're, they're too kind of politically um, engaged and, and you know, they 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 were far more likely to have taken part in really low turnout elections than normal. They were far more likely to, you know, recognise various political figures than your average person. Um, and so that was what ended up skewing things. So I think it, there is... 
that's why I think it's the most likely theory is I think there is um, some merit to the idea that there is a slice of people who are being missed um, by all the sort of traditional methods and who um, do you know, almost uniformly sort of swing Trump. Um, one of the things which um, makes it also quite difficult is that you would expect this if we were talking about just telephone poles. So, um, yeah, the, the telemarketing industry and, and marketing industry has basically sort of killed telephone survey research as a as a sort of reliable method. I mean, it's, it's still used quite a lot. I'm, I'm exaggerating slightly there, but it has massively driven down response rates um, so that if you call a random sample of American homes, far fewer of them are actually going to answer and take part. And so the number of calls that you need to make in order to get a, a sample size is far, far higher. And therefore, the, the characteristics of the people who answer are a bit different. The cost goes up. Exactly. Um, but that shouldn't, in theory, be the case online. Um, it, it suggests that basically recruiting to online panels, which is what we use for most online research, um, that also is facing a similar recruitment problem in terms of the kind of person who we get to sign up. So it's not that because you know you're not going to have the same shame about admitting you vote for Trump or believe in conspiracy theories or whatever to a computer as you do to a, an individual. So it's not that it's not that those people are necessarily lying when they participate; they're just not participating. Precisely, yeah, yeah. And then when you're thinking about the UK, I mean, you've mentioned that you've mentioned the 2015 uh, election. Um, I mean, we haven't really had a comparable scenario since then, though. Uh, and it's difficult. I mean, I, unless I'm kind of mis, in, unless I'm kind of misunderstanding this, I can't think of a similar. I mean, is there a similar demographic? Is there a similar dynamic at play at all in the UK now that that would that that, that, that uh, would impact on the way we do things here? I think it, it is possible that that polling in the US is going to go through at the moment what polling in the UK went through between sort of 2015 and and you know, 2017, 2019. Um, in that there were lots of steps taken by lots of different companies to try and correct for that and to try and bring in people who are less politically engaged and, and to try and factor that in. Um, the fact that, you know, the last UK election was the best performance by British polling companies for, for decades suggests that maybe we have got a good handle on that and, and, and have moved on. And so it is potentially a solvable problem. Um, election polling in the UK is much more online. And it's, it's I think it's only a couple of companies that do telephone polls, whereas in the US... Um, there's a mix of live caller phone polls um, and then um, sort of what's called robocalls where it's essentially a recording and you press the button for whichever answer you want and also online. So on online is less prevalent there uh, than it is here. So it may be that that, that, is, that is some way of, of helping solve that. But one of the things to stress was that in all the discussion of um, shy Trump voters, if that was the case, you would expect to see Trump doing better in online polls than he did in telephone polls. And that just wasn't the case. Yeah, which suggests it's more a kind of fundamental disengagement rather than something rather than just mis mis people misleading the pollsters. Um, to, just, um, I mean, that's quite. That, I mean, that's really interesting because generally, if you're thinking about the practice of politics in the UK, I suppose you tend to think the assumption tends to be that we mimic our politics, mimics what goes on in the US, and you think of so kind of I don't know, Clinton's New Democrats in '92, and then you've got New Labour five years later and the Third Way, and a lot of that came out of the US and influenced our politics. But what you're suggesting is. Possibly the US might have been influenced in their polling methods by the UK or should be influenced by the, in their polling methods by the UK, could, could learn from what we've been through. I suppose the other point to bear in mind is they're fundamentally different countries with different populations who do different things. 
Just moving on then. So one of the interesting things from your polling at the weekend was about what uh, British people think of Biden's victory. And the kind of the, the thing that was really striking, and you, 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 of course, put this out in your in your media comment, was the fact that the majority of people actually uh, actually thought Biden's victory was a good thing. They thought actually we we the UK might actually do worse do worse out of it. Yeah, it's it. So one of those figures isn't really surprising because we've we've done um, we we've been asking about that in every presidential election there's been since well opinion started after Obama's first one. So um, in 2012, um, British people wanted Obama to win over Mitt Romney by something like three to one, like you know sixty something percent to in the teens. Um, in 2016, uh, British people wanted Hillary Clinton to win by an overwhelming margin over Donald Trump. So it's not really that that surprising, I suppose that, um, you know, they, they also, or we also, uh, were very keen to see uh, Donald Trump defeated. Um, where you've got, um, one of the things which potentially has, though, um, crept in is this idea that, um, you know, Donald Trump sort of calling himself Mr. Brexit before um, twenty uh, before he, he won in 2016 and really sort of identifying himself as part of that phenomenon. Um, so there's a bit of a perception that um, he... That, that a Trump victory might have been better for for Britain getting a, a trade deal than a Biden victory, um, but the margins are fairly slim. If I'm honest, I was going to say so for almost all of the the sort of six issues that we asked about, um, a trade deal is actually the one where the two are the closest. So for almost all of them, people say that Biden would be, would be better than Trump. So for the U.S. generally, 58% Biden, 19% Trump. Uh, for the global economy, 56% Biden, 19% Trump. Um, climate change, 66% Biden, 11% Trump. So the one where the the the, the issues where actually Trump is closest. Um, is actually that one about negotiating a trade deal. So 41% say Biden will be better for this, 29% say Trump. And that's that's the highest figure for Trump that we have for anything because, again, that's been something which has been you know, talked about publicly for, for quite a lot is the idea that Trump's going to give us this yeah, amazing trade deal which four years in has yet to materialise. I wonder whether – did you poll or have you ever polled kind of – who people see as more trustworthy because I wonder whether I mean one of the this is a view that I have I have to say of of, of Trump versus Biden you know however much and I'm skeptical but however much one might think that Trump for whatever reason is more likely to give us a trade deal than um, Biden uh, I actually strongly suspect that in that in practice because Trump is so mercurial because he's so unpredictable Biden would actually be a better person to do a deal with and a more a, a, an easier person to do a deal with. And I, I I wonder whether some of that is playing into some of these numbers. I, I think I think the numbers are reflecting that almost exactly. Yeah. Um we we've got um we did ask about trustworthiness, but that was to American uh, to an American audience. Um but it it certainly seems pretty reasonable to assume that um you can for, for a British audience, you can you can take a lot of the American political stuff and and whack up the Democrat side of it quite a bit um because of the sort of because of the general preference among Brits for uh, whichever the Democratic candidate is. So turning to the UK, the other striking thing that you uh, showed was, uh, I mean, you've been polling, I mean, we've had a previous discussion about how broadly uh, polling uh, Labour and Tories have been polling neck and neck for a while. You've now showed a uh, a Labour lead that that's gone up from two. I mean, I suppose you could argue that was margin of error to four points in a in in, in a fortnight with Labour on forty two and the Conservatives, you know, remaining steady on thirty eight. Um, what is this? Do you think this 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 is the post, a post lockdown phenomenon? 
one of the Wikipedia pages that I recommend to people um, sort of bookmark or check out just because it's, it's quite a useful um, aggregate for all of this is just the Wikipedia page opinion polling for the next United Kingdom general election because some kind souls always go and update the latest results from every company and put them in there, um, which means that it's, it's quite easy to look at things, to take quite a long view of things. And generally the, the, the picture since, you know, the start of the year really obviously is that you've got you know, blue for conservative leads all the way until about um, until about sort of late August. So you see, well, actually, um, weirdly, the one the the event that is just before the first Labour lead is Ed Davey becoming leader of the Liberal Democrats. But I'm not really sure that's that's the 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 impactful event that we we all think it is. Um, but there's a gradual sort of narrowing of the conservative lead, especially after um, May 2020. So when um, the public starts to sort of turn against the government's handling of, of COVID more generally. So since May, uh, the two have been a lot closer together and you had a really long period of um, basically the two parties sort of effectively being tied and, and the true position probably being a tiny Tory lead and natural sampling variation, meaning that individual results of polls would jump a bit around this. So you would see the odd result where the two were tied and you see the occasional result where Labour was a tiny bit ahead. Um, but you'd have the results overall were generally kind of split between Tory lead and tie. And what's different now is that you're you're now starting to see a more kind of even mix of Labour lead, Tory lead, tie, which suggests that, that Labour really have pulled level and are possibly slightly ahead if we look at the size of the leads that different companies are posting. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's also striking that kind of in your poll, uh, I think it was three in five, 62% um, took the view that the lockdown down was in the, the lockdown we are now in uh, was implemented too late too late uh, and indeed 62 percent disapprove of the government's handling of the crisis um, I mean it doesn't make you wonder and you I mean this is a stereotype but I think there's a lot in it and I think the conservatives as a party think of themselves a bit like this you know the stereotype is that people vote for the Tories not because they think they care about people but because they're competent uh, and you just wonder whether I mean, the, the, this has been a kind of whole year of U-turns on a variety of things, but obviously COVID has been the kind of, has been one of the most consistent issues on that. Um, you just wonder whether actually, if the, if the comp if the view of competence falls away, they're just seen as cold-hearted, and then why would you vote Tory? Yeah, it, the there's there's two two interesting things about this. One of them is that. Um, the, the pattern uh, which I've bored on about for ages, but the pattern throughout the whole coronavirus crisis is that the public generally are more supportive than opposed to any kind of lockdown measure that comes in. And they've typically always thought that um, whichever measure is taken is is implemented too late. So that's not, not so surprising. Um, but the fact that there is a gap between the percentage supporting the latest lockdown um, and the percentage approving of how the government is handling things um, suggests that they're not being given the credit anymore for doing what the public think is the right thing. Yeah, and I suppose there's a question. I mean, uh, did you did you poll or have you polled any attitudes on uh, on on a va- on on a vaccine? People's optimism for it, or the extent to which that's likely to kind of bring credit to the government. It slightly feels like the the government doesn't get any credit for anything they do right. They just get they just get blamed for things that go badly. It's it's more a question for the for the next survey. I feel um, the way actually, funnily enough, the way in which we the only polling which we have done about a vaccine recently was for our U.S. election polling, where there was a theory that uh, President Trump was going to lean on the Food and Drugs Administration to approve whatever they had in train, 
um, just before the election so that he could go out and say, look, we've now got a vaccine. And so we did a question asking whose declaration on that you would trust. And we found that basically Trump could do that if he wanted, but unless Anthony Fauci also came out and said it, it wouldn't really get him much credit. Um, <laughs> and interestingly, Trump is now doing that. But of course, the poll polling day has taken place, but it isn't, hasn't, hasn't stopped him claiming credit for it. And presumably he's going to ask for the ballot to be rerun on that basis. Um, <laughs> exactly, yeah. um, so it's, it's an interesting point, though, as to whether or not the government will, will take credit for it or not. It, the, it speaks a bit to the sort of longer term question that's arisen throughout all of this crisis which is 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 covid something that we just have to kind of batten down the hatches and get through and then come out on the other side and everything's fine again or is this a permanent change to the way that we have to to live and so depending on when any successful vaccine comes that could suggest that it's more towards the former than the latter and therefore it, it also and i'm sure you have some strong opinions on this it also speaks to um, the ongoing sort of debate about the financial side of it, which is should we should we treat this current period as you know the new normal and and therefore spending levels need to be a, a adjusted and adapted to be more sustainable, um, given that we don't know when the crisis is going to end, or should this be seen almost like you know like one of the world wars or something in that it's an exceptional period of um, you know emergency spending, but which is then treated as separately from from normal um, sort of uh, government debt. It obviously is an exceptional period of emergency spending, but uh, but you can't then kind of put it in a box and ignore it and carry on as carry on as uh, as, as as before because you know our income our income is dramatically different and uh, and yet we've got to service a higher debt. So, um, I mean, it's and and one of the things that has come through in some of our previous discussions about this, as well as anything you read in the media and people you speak to, is that kind of. Our political class, let alone public opinion, is entirely unprepared for what it, what it, what has got to come as a consequence of that. You know, we are going to have quite a difficult period of readjustment, which I think will make the previous period look relatively mild by comparison. I don't think anyone is prepared for that, and the kind of I'm not clear how how that will impact on on Sunak, but. Uh, you know, Boris might be might be hoping that uh, that he's he Rishi Sunak is still in position at, the, at that point to soak up some of the some of the blame, and that is unfortunately all we have time for today. We are running these podcasts fortnightly alongside our weekly political capsule newsletter, which contains further insight and analysis from both Lanson's and opinion. If you would like to subscribe to the newsletter or to receive receive updates about the podcasts. Please go to the public affairs page of the Lansons website, www.lansons.com, and click to subscribe to Political Capital. And Opinium is polled with the Observer runs every fortnight and appears on our website every other Saturday evening. So go to opinium.com to see uh, more analysis and charts and graphics and stuff, and sign up for updates for when we release something new. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.